Well, we're reading from Galatians. The title of today's message is going to be The Seed of Abraham. The Seed of Abraham. The subject of Abraham is very much central to Galatians 3, really to Galatians overall. And for good reason. And we're going to see why Paul brings Abraham into his argument in Galatians today. As we've been seeing, Paul is very much getting at the basis of what Christianity is in the epistle to the Galatians. He's trying to show the Galatians what the true gospel of Jesus Christ is. It is not a religion based on works, but it is the grace of God worked through a new birth. Now, I want to read further on here in Galatians 3 than we've read before, but I want to start with Paul's question that he did ask the Galatians in Galatians 3.3. He says to them, Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect or completed by the flesh? In other words, he's asking them, Listen, everything you have from God you received by grace. Every, everything that you have from God, you got free of charge, Galatians. You received it as a gift via the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, now that you've received everything by grace, why do you now think that you're going to finish the job by works? Why do you think that you're going to accomplish something by your works that Jesus has not accomplished by his death and resurrection? Now that's the stage that we have seen has been set by Paul going into Galatians 3 here. And he asks those questions. There's four rhetorical questions he asks in verse 3, verse 5. But then in verse 6, and this is where we begin today, Paul begins to bring in another argument. He says, even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know you therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham? And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. So then, they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Now, at first glance, in reading Galatians, this simply might sound like another lesson Paul is giving on faith to sort of contrast it over and against the works of the Galatians, and certainly that is part of what's happening here. Paul's trying to show them that the Christian life is a life of faith, not just of doing good works. But there's more to this than might initially meet the eye once Paul brings in the argument of Abraham. Notice some of the terminology that he uses here when he he talks about uh, Abraham. For instance, in verse 7, Don't you know that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham? Well, who is of faith, really? Christians, right? I mean, that's the whole point. In other words... Paul is saying to the Galatians, don't you know that if you are of faith, you are a child of Abraham? Now, that may not make a whole lot of sense as far as pertinence. It may just sound like fact Paul's giving until we plug it into the context and until we understand why he's bringing in this example of Abraham. 
The Galatians, as we've seen over and over again, were trying to do for themselves as Christians what God has already given them freely in Christ. And, and, And we've talked a lot about that. But when we begin to talk about Abraham, we begin to talk about something else which is a like truth to the truth of grace. It is really the truth of inheritance in Christ. It's really the truth of inheritance as a child of God, of the things of God. And we're going to see that in a minute when we read about Abraham. Now, to cut to the bottom line, what Paul is getting at is this. He is saying that everything that God has for you, you are entitled to, and I hate that word, but I'm going to use it just for a moment, you are entitled to as an inheritance in Jesus Christ. It's, you're an heir. How many times in the Bible Paul talks about an inheritance and the fact that Christians are heirs to the promise? And this ties into Abraham very clearly, as we're going to see in a minute. Paul is saying you have an inheritance lined up for you by virtue of the fact that you have been born again in Jesus Christ. He's saying to the Galatians, well, if the inheritance is yours through the new birth, what are you working for? What are you trying to earn? Think about it for a second. How do you get an inheritance? What entitles you to inheritance? And I'm not talking about some of these screwball things you read about in the news and all this kind of stuff. I'm just talking about normally speaking, under normal circumstances, what entitles you or lines you up for an inheritance? Do you have to work for it? Do you have to go get a job and earn an inheritance? You don't. The only thing that entitles you to inheritance, the only thing that can entitle you to an inheritance, is to be born into the right family. That's how you get an inheritance, right? If you are born into the right family, and that family has possessions to pass on to you and I, we don't have to do anything to earn that inheritance. In fact, you read about some of these rich movie stars, Paris Hilton and all that, they are heirs to a fortune. She did nothing to earn that that inheritance. She simply happened to be born into the right family. Well, what Paul is doing when he brings in Abraham, he is saying, listen, Galatians, you're here doing all these works, and they're good works, and they're religious works, and they look like they are just fantastic works that you're doing. But the reason you're doing them is because you think you're going to earn an inheritance. He says that in doing so, you are completely on a wrong basis. He is saying to them, you are already lined up. You are already birthed through the new birth into the family of God to which the inheritance automatically and already belongs. So again, we come back to our basic principle that we've seen a number of times. Christianity is never a matter of you and I trying to earn or maintain anything. Christianity is a matter of us embracing what God freely gives and then expressing it through living and through a relationship with God. And this is why Paul, having asked these questions to the Galatians, well, you've begun by the Spirit, now what are you trying to complete by the flesh? He is saying you have been born again, new creations in Christ Jesus. 
You are born, if you will, into a brand new race. Isn't that what a new creation is? It's a new kind of life, a new kind of man in Christ. He says you've been born into that, and because you're in Christ, you are heirs according to promise. You're not heirs because of anything you do. You're heirs because you're in Christ, and He's the heir. And so what we see immediately again is this tremendous contrast between what a Christian really is and what some religious people like the Galatians and some of us think that it is. Now today, as I mentioned, I'm going to talk about this concept, Abraham's seed, the inheritance, and what all of that means. But I do want to mention just in passing that you can hardly talk about this subject of the inheritance without bringing in two other issues, which I'm going to talk about the next two weeks. Number one, you have to talk about the issue of rewards and punishments and how that is involved in the Christian life. Because that's always a big issue that people bring in. They can't understand how if everything's freely inherited, how how that works when God says things like, I'm going to reward you according to your works. It's a Bible verse. What does that mean? How does that fit in? And the other thing we have to talk about in relationship to this is that inevitably when we talk about inheritance and everything being free, we must establish once and for all the truth of eternal security. You just can't talk about one of these things hardly at all without bringing in the rest because they're all one truth. And they raise questions that need to be answered. And so we're going to talk about those things, too, in subsequent weeks. Well, anyway, Paul says to the Galatians to get into this idea of inheritance. He says that, don't you know that they who are of faith, verse 7, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In you all nations would be blessed. How many see inheritance there? In Abraham. In other words, that's his heritage. And incidentally, I bet most of us haven't realized that God was preaching the gospel to Abraham, have we? It says so right here. It says that the gospel was preached to Abraham when God promised him a son. Now, if we go back to Genesis, we'll see why that's the case. Go back to Genesis 17 to get at the root of this thing that Paul's uh, mentioning here. Genesis 17 isn't the first time that God appeared to Abraham. It's one of the last times that he appeared before the birth of Isaac. In Genesis 17, 7, God says to Abraham, And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and with your seed after you in their generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto you and to your seed after you. Now, again, when we read this verse, if we didn't know... Paul's explanation in Galatians, and he gives one in Romans too, we would think that what's being promised here is that God's going to bless Isaac and then the Jews. And certainly that's included. But we just read that they who are of faith are the children of Abraham, didn't we? From Galatians. So when God talks about the seed of Abraham here in Galatians 17, he's not just talking about the Jews, he's talking really about 
those who are of faith. He's talking about Christians. He's talking about us. Because Christians are the true seed of Abraham. And that's what Paul is explaining and getting at. Now to follow that up, Genesis 22 is another one. Genesis 22, God gives uh, Abraham a couple more promises in verse uh, 17. He says, In blessing I will bless you, speaking to Abraham, God is, and in multiplying I will multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in verse 18 is the verse that Paul quoted that we read in Galatians as a quote. He says, And in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. In other words, you have had faith. So in verse 18 here in Galatians 22, God promises Abraham, In your seed shall all the nations be blessed. Well, in What seed? Who is the seed? Who is Abraham's seed through whom all the nations will be blessed? Don't have to guess at that one. It says exactly who that is in Galatians 3, verse 16. It says, Now to Abraham, Galatians 3, 16, and to his seed were the promises made. God did not say, and to seeds as of many, but he said, and to thy seed as of one, which is Christ. Who is the seed of Abraham? The seed of Abraham is Jesus Christ. So when God told Abraham way back in Genesis, in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, He was saying, yes, you're going to have Isaac, but Isaac's going to have Jacob, and Jacob's going to have 12, and that's going to be Israel, and out of that is going to come the real seed of Abraham, who is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And so this was the gospel being preached to Abraham. In fact, you can go back to Genesis 3, and you'll see that there it talks about the seed of the woman being the one who defeats the enemy. Well, fast forward to the time of Abraham, now it's the seed of Abraham. It's the same seed. It is one born of woman, the God-man, who would come into this world through whom salvation would be possible for everyone who would believe. They who are of faith are the children or seed of Abraham. Now, how how do we fit into this picture? Because we're seeing here very clearly that Jesus Christ is the seed of Abraham. Where do we fit in? Well, we fit in starting in Galatians 3 again, verse 26. Paul once again says, For you are all the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So we see a oneness there. We're one with Jesus Christ if we've believed. And then in verse 28, Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Jesus Christ. And if you be Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. And heirs according to promise. What promise? Promise we just read out of Genesis. 
that God made Abraham. So what do we see from all of this? We see that Jesus Christ, Son of God, is the seed of Abraham. And because of his finished work, he stands, in fact, already has inherited all things. He won that. And we're going to read how he won it in a minute. Jesus Christ has inherited all things from God. As the seed of Abraham, that's the promise of the Father. However, God tells us that if we believe, we are made one with Christ. And because he is the seed of Abraham who inherits all things, then therefore we likewise are the seed of Abraham in him and inherit all things. Now this, if you really think this through, is an incredibly awesome thought. And if there's nothing else that we see at this point from Galatians, we certainly ought to see the folly, having said all of that, of trying to earn this stuff by doing works. No. If we are in Christ, we are the seed of Abraham, and it says we are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise of God. And what that means is, and we see it all through the Bible, we see it in the book of Revelation, it means that the believer potentially and in every way stands to inherit everything Jesus already has inherited in him. Not apart from him, but in him. Now let's read a little bit about this idea of inheritance from some other places in the New Testament. Ephesians, of course, is a primary place where this stuff is mentioned. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in, oh, let's say verse 10. Let's read a little bit here in Ephesians because it's really, really amazing. Paul's talking about God's purpose, and he says in verse 10 in Ephesians 1, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, God might gather together in one just like we read out of Galatians, all one in Jesus Christ, all things in Christ. He wants to gather together all things which are in heaven, which are on earth, even in Him. Paul says about Christ, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance. Now incidentally, just uh, before I continue there, we need to get a thought established very clearly here, and Paul is seeking to do this both in Galatians and Ephesians, but it's a concept that is often forgotten. We are Abraham's seed and heirs according to promise only by virtue of our oneness with Jesus Christ. And it's going to say here a thousand times, in whom, in him, in whom, in him. And what I'm getting at is this. Never separate anything that God wants to give you and I from our relationship with Christ. In other words, this isn't a matter of God sitting up in heaven and saying to me, well, David, you did something really good here today, so I'm going to give you a reward, and here's a thing that I'm going to give you as a reward. That's how some folks have taught down through the years it's error. No. All that we inherit is simply the outcome of being in Christ and a result of our relationship with Him. 
You know, God doesn't have up in heaven a big bucket or a grab bag of rewards. He doesn't say, okay, you did good works, here's some of uh, the stuff out of my grab bag. You did a bad work today, so I'm going to yank some of it back. It's not like God has a big chart up in heaven where he's pasting gold stars. Every time we do something good and taking gold stars off, every time we do something bad, and then we hope by the time we die we have more on the chart than we're taking off. That's a bunch of baloney. That is not what the Bible reveals at all. What God says to us is that your inheritance is Jesus Christ himself, and then by virtue of your relationship with him, everything else emerges out of that. So in other words, if I want to reign and rule with Christ, which the Bible speaks of in the eternal ages, I have to let him reign and rule over me. In other words, my relationship with Christ has to be such that I can be an extension of His authority. If I want to live in fellowship with other people in the here and now, and accomplish things from God in the here and now, that's not just an assignment God hands somebody. That has to become an extension of my personal relationship with Christ. We're to be extensions of... The life of Christ, the authority of Christ, the grace of God. We're not plugged into Christ. None of it works. Now, people can fake it. You can get very religious and seem to have a relationship with God. But Paul makes it very clear that all inheritance is an extension of the fact that we are one with Christ. There's no inheritance outside of him because he's inherited all things. So it's always a mistake to separate the things of God from God. It's always a mistake to think that we can experience aspects of God's purpose, but not recognize they have to be founded on a relationship with Christ. And an extension of that, and incidentally, and I've mentioned this before, this is often the reason why in life now, if we get into a difficulty or have a problem or whatever and we're crying out to God, it's often why He doesn't answer right away. He is answering, we just may not notice it. But the reason the thing doesn't seem to get resolved is God is saying, listen, I care about that, I'm going to resolve it, I'm going to keep every promise I ever made to you in my time, but what I'm trying to do, God would say to us, is I'm trying to establish you in a relationship with me. And if God is able to do that, then that relationship will govern the problem that we are so hurried to get resolved. And you can apply that to almost anything. I guess one of the best examples would be like if you wanted a job or something. I mean... God cares about that and he promises that, but do we want God to give us a job to the disregard of our relationship with him? And this isn't a matter of us being in rebellion or anything, it's just a matter of discipline and training. God says, I want you to have a job, but I want it to be governed by your relationship with me, and presently the way that I accomplish that is by not giving you one. And that may not make a whole lot of sense to us. We may not be able to put our finger on where that is and how that is. It's not necessarily rebellion or that we could detect someplace in our life where we're not right with God. But the point is God knows us better than we know us 
And if he says that's his way with us, he knows best. And so he's saying, I'm working on a relationship with you. And then when I'm satisfied that that is established, then we can take the next step together, God would say. Because you're governed by that relationship. And that's the way it is with inheritance. There are thousands of Christians right now, you hear them on TV every week. They're talking about reigning and ruling with Christ and having all the stuff they're going to do. And they act like it's a big reward for all the serving they did. Oh, they preached the sermon and God's going to let them rule over ten nations because they preached a good sermon. That is such nonsense. You and I will never be qualified to rule over anything unless God's ruling over us. It comes back to our relationship with Him. Can He trust us with His possessions? Can He say to us, I know that you will do my will to my glory. Well, if He can't say that, there's not going to be any dominion or authority handed to us. It's not going to happen. And that's the part that people forget very often. Well, anyway, back to uh, this uh, passage in Ephesians. In whom, in Christ, also we have obtained an inheritance. This is verse 11. Being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will that we should be the praise of his glory who first trusted Christ. Now incidentally, verse 12 is what we're predestined to. This isn't even talking about salvation and predestination. He's saying we're predestined according to the purpose. And then it says in verse 12, what that purpose is? That we should be the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. And he says in verse 13, In whom you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after you believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest or down payment, the word means, of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Now what does that mean there in verse 14? that the Holy Spirit is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. What it means is that in this age, in this life, if you have turned to Christ, He has put His very life inside of you. That is, as it were, a down payment on the fullness of experience in God that we will have in the eternal ages. Now, it shouldn't come as a shock to us that despite the fact that we have all things in Christ, that we're rather encumbered, are we not, by our temperament, our body of flesh, by our natural thinking, by really all the forces of evil in this life. Well, we're not going to be in the eternal ages, are we? The whole definition of a resurrected body is that we're not going to have those hindrances that we have now of the flesh. And what God is saying is, listen, I had to start somewhere with a fallen creation. So I'm going to call people out of the world to, uh, uh, to Christ. And I'm going to put inside of them the indwelling of Christ through the Holy Spirit. But in this life, we're only going to get so far with that. He says, that's a down payment. But when the redemption in its fullness is finally come and released then everything that that means, 
that is in you by virtue of Christ is also going to be released. And you're going to be released into a full experience of what that down payment suggested. I can't imagine, for instance, what it would be like to experience the peace of God or the joy of God without any encumbrance of the flesh. I mean, we're really, when we say that, we're talking about experiencing God Himself without any encumbrance of the flesh. You and I, the moment we turn to God, despite the fact that we are Christians and one with Him in the Spirit, are we not encumbered by our thinking? I mean, I don't know about you, but my mind is pretty finite. God's a whole lot bigger than my mind. Well, what will it be like to have that encumbrance removed? I mean, at that point, God really will be all in all, won't he? And God is saying through Paul here, we've been given a down payment on this. We've been given an experience in Christ here that is only a down payment on the fullness. That word earnest, earnest of our our inheritance, does mean down payment. It is actually a word that is used in other places in the Greek uh, language, different um, works of literature in that. It's used to describe an engagement ring. And it's almost as if God is saying, in this life you are fully engaged to me, unto something greater. And really, isn't this the message... In, in so many ways of the New Testament, that this life is not it. We could read, for instance, in Hebrews 11, where it talks about Christians being citizens of another country. And God likens us as being citizens of another country because we have that life in us of that other country. We are born of another creation. And all this life is is sort of a strange country that we're passing through on our way to the fullness. Now, it's an important place because it is here that we establish a relationship with God. And it's here that we begin to deal with this inheritance and experience it. But it's not it. That's why God is willing to sacrifice just about anything of the temporal if it means He can give us the eternal. And... Uh, tells us that we need to lose everything, so to speak, of this temporal, as far as our tie to it, for the eternal, so that we may glorify God and come on in His purposes. And Paul's going to begin to talk about that here in Ephesians 1, if we read on. talks about the earnest or down payment of our inheritance in verse 14. And then in verse 15 he says, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the Lord, uh, that the God of our Lord Jesus, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling and what is the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power, and so forth. So Paul not only tells them that there is an inheritance, he says that it is my will, and of course God's will by extension, that you see it and know it. 
What is the inheritance? The inheritance of the children of God is God Himself and everything that extends from that. When the Bible, for instance, talks about inheriting the kingdom of God, this isn't just a matter of God handing people a kingdom. This is a matter of God giving us Himself, and then based on a relationship with Him, we are then qualified to reign and rule with Him. It all extends from our relationship with God. mentioned last week, uh, in passing, I think, how important it is to first establish our vertical relationship with God. Our personal one-on-one relationship with God is where it starts. And if that gets right and based in truth, if God gets a hold of us personally, then can we see how all the horizontal relationships and living, well, all of a sudden, then that gets adjusted, doesn't it, in accordance with that vertical. But what a mistake it is to get under these laws and rules that you see around sometimes that try to govern and dictate all this horizontal stuff. You need to do this, you need to do that. And some of that might be valid and biblical. But the point is, you can't, Govern that by obeying mechanical laws. Well, you've got to go over here and submit to this, you've got to do that, and that'll make you right with God, is the implication. And all that that is saying erroneously is that you need to get the horizontal first, and then you'll be right with God, and that is wrong. You've got to get right with God first, and then the horizontal will line up. And this is a bigger error that has reoccurred in the Christian church than we can possibly believe. First of all, every principle that you have ever heard with regard, for instance, to submission to authority, that tells you that unless you submit to authority, you can't be right with God, is an error on this very truth. You will never be right with God by submitting to authority. You can forget it. What makes you right with God is faith in Jesus Christ. And then guess what? If I'm right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, I'm not going to have any problem with people, am I? You submit to God and come under His rule and authority, personally and individually, you're not going to have any problem submitting to people where it is God's will that you do so. That's why with problems in marriages and things, you don't need... To be a Christian to solve maritable problems if all that it is is a checklist of do's and don'ts. Well, you treat her this way, and if she treats you that way, then it'll work. You can be an atheist and teach those things, and they might work. Because we're talking about human relationships. But what God says in the Bible is that the key to marriage harmony is for both the husband and the wife to individually be lined up with God for themselves first. If a husband is lined up with God... He's going to be lined up with his wife, isn't he? As an extension of that. If a wife is lined up with God, she's going to have a right relationship with her husband. She can't help but have one because God is funneling his life through her. And so it comes back to the necessity of getting the vertical relationship correct with God first And then, as a result of that, what emerges is the horizontal. And it'll line up. And there's learning involved and so forth. We all make our mistakes. But the principle is nevertheless there. And this is exactly, really, the truth that Paul is trying to teach to the Galatians and to so many of the other churches to whom he wrote. 
He's saying you're trying to obey all these rules and all of these laws to earn an inheritance, to make yourself right with God, to do in yourself what you think needs to be done. He's saying Christ has already done that and He's in you. Now he says get in business with that and of course good works will emerge. Like I've said so many times, how can you fall in love with Jesus Christ and not do good works and not obey Him? You will. And this is what Paul is trying to say. So this inheritance that God has for us is at its root fellowship with Himself. Relationship with Himself. And then, as an extension of that, various things like dominion and authority and relationships with others. Not only now, but throughout the eternal ages. That's the inheritance. And Paul says, I want you to see that. Now, I want to touch briefly on the fact, because this is exactly what Paul is saying to the Galatians. In fact, it's his whole point. I want to touch on the fact that the inheritance that God has for us is absolutely 100% free. That one is one that's hard to believe for a lot of people. And like I said, that's going to require a whole separate message because we need to talk about that in light of rewards and punishments and so forth. But how do we know that the inheritance that God has for us is 100% free? Well, first of all, we know it because Jesus paid the full price. If Jesus paid the price for everything by his death and resurrection... Ask yourself the question, how much of a price is left over for you and I to pay? Zero. I mean, simple logic will tell you that. If I have to do anything to earn, if I have to pay for what God has for me, then Jesus didn't pay for it. What, does God want double payment? Furthermore, do I really believe that anything I can do will pay for anything of God? I mean, that's ridiculous, isn't it? What do I have to offer that's of any value to God for the things of God? So simple logic will tell you that if Jesus, if his death paid the full price, then there isn't any price left over for us to pay. But there are scriptures that say this directly. Romans 8, verse 31 It says there, What shall then we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his only Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Doesn't get any more plain than that, does it? Not only does it directly say that God with Christ will give us freely all things, which again comes back to the fact that all of this is a matter of us being one with Christ. In other words, we receive all things freely because we are in Christ and Christ has inherited all things. It's always associated with Christ. He not only says that directly here, but he also associates it with the fact that Christ paid for all of this. He says God delivered him up for us all, and as a result of this, how can it be any other way except that God would give us all things freely? Now one other scripture, 1 Corinthians 2.12. 
1 Corinthians 2.12 says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God. Why? That we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Now, isn't it a fact that one of the most difficult things for a human being to do, for even a Christian to do, is to really get a handle on the free gift of God in Jesus Christ, the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Now, as I've said so many times, I understand that we all know the doctrine. I had the doctrine memorized when I was 15 years old. We know the doctrine, that's good. You need to know biblical doctrine. I'm talking about seeing this in a way that sets us free. I'm talking about seeing the truth of grace in a way that removes every obstacle between us and God. Because that's what grace tells us. Very difficult concept for a lot of people to grasp. I know I was one of them that had years living under condemnation and legalism. Couldn't see this for the life of me. And I know God was talking to me all along the way. I'll, I'll relate one time. I remember one time in California where I lived at the time, I was caught in bumper-to-bumper traffic, and my attitude wasn't very good about it. I was just having a tough time with this, and, you know, got all upset about it. I was angry. I wanted to get home. And, of course, then I went through a little repentance time. You know, God, I really shouldn't have this attitude. And I remember distinctly saying to the Lord, and this was innocent enough, and it sounds right, and as far as it goes, it is right. But here's what I said to the Lord. I said, Lord, you know, it really is a privilege to be able to come to you just as I am. Now, that sounds right, doesn't it? But God knew what was behind that statement in my thinking. I said to God, It's really a privilege, God, to be able to come to you just as I am. You know what God said to me? He said, Just as you are is the only way you can come. And boy, did that set me straight. I began to realize from that day forward that coming and receiving free of charge from God was not one of many options. It's the only way you can come. In fact, if we don't come and receive it free of charge, I question whether we are coming. Because we are, in fact, in that case, coming on a wrong basis. Now, I used to wonder why this was. Why, God, are all things freely given by your grace? There have got to be reasons for things. God doesn't just pull things out of a hat and say, oh, I guess I'll do this for his eternal plan. Neither do I think that God one day sat down in heaven and said, let's see, I want to invent a religion named Christianity. Oh, I guess I'll just make everything free. Not an arbitrary decision. There's a reason why everything is free. And you can only get it by grace. And the reason is, is because God is God. And what I'm saying is, what do we think we could possibly offer to pay or to trade or to merit what God is or what God has? When we're talking about something that is of such infinite value that human beings cannot even grasp it or know it except it be revealed to them by the Spirit, well, we're talking about something that has to be free. 
In fact, I'll tell you, uh, one way that we know of what infinite value the things of God are is simply the fact that it took God himself becoming a man and dying on the cross to pay for them. They are worth the very life of God himself. That's the value of what God has for us. Now, of course, I think part of the problem here is because we, in our ignorance and blindness, all part of this process of growth, because we don't understand what the things of God are, we don't understand who God is, we don't know Him, we don't value Him, or who He is or what He does. We're kind of callous to that. It's part of what's wrong with us being born in Adam. And the Bible says so. And so when we hear about the grace of God, we sort of, you know, just take it lightly or slough it off. We say, well, that's nice. I know that doctrine. Isn't that a wonderful, you know, doctrine? Please pass the butter. Let's get on to the next subject. That's kind of how it is, isn't it? I mean, we go through life that way. And God knows that. I mean, I don't think he condemns us for it. It's just the way it is with people who are blind. And that includes all of us initially. But the fact of the matter is... The reason that the things of God are freely given is that that is the only possible way God could give them. There is no other basis upon which God could give himself or his vast riches in Christ except give them freely. You can't put a price on them. How can God offer himself in exchange for anything? And so what we're talking about when we're talking about grace and the inheritance, we're talking about something that actually strikes at the very heart and core of God himself and his value and his worth. Can't put a price on that. Now, the problem then becomes clear. If everything is freely given, why won't people receive it? I mean, I can tell you ten times over, and I can, I can recite this to myself and have. Everything's freely given. Now what? You know, what do we do with that? Well, it has to be unfolded. It has to be revealed to us. But isn't it a fact that in order to receive what God freely gives, you have to come into a relationship with God where you can freely receive? And if you see what I'm getting at, that requires being brought to nothing. You and I will never receive freely what is given freely until we are absolutely convinced we have nothing we can do to pay for it. Now we may not lay it out like that in our thinking. We may not put it down doctrinally. But in the end, that's what's built into our nature. It's what the source of unbelief really is. The problem isn't the free gift. The problem is us. We still think that there's something about us that we can scrape up, gather together, and present to God in exchange. And somehow doing that kind of makes us feel good about ourselves. And we think that if we were ever brought to the place where we see we have nothing to give to God, we just think that would be awful because to us, well, then we're going to be condemned because we're nothing. But we're not reading the Bible. God already tells us we're nothing. He says, I've seen it long before you did, and I still love you, and I still saved you. 
And so part of what God is trying to do in the Christian life, as we've seen in other messages, is that He is trying to bring us to the place where we will freely receive what He freely wants to give. Now, if you get what I'm saying in all of this with regard to the free gift, it comes back again to the right kind of relationship with God. I mentioned earlier that when I was having that time there in the car, that I told God, isn't it a privilege that we can come, you know, just as we are. And God said to me, well, that's the only way you can come. And what he was really saying to me is that if you try to receive the grace of God on another basis, your relationship with me won't be right. It won't be. This this is about truth. And again, it's about who God is. If I try to receive the things of God on another basis than grace, can we see that it's a wrong basis for relationship? And then everything's off. What does he say to the Galatians later in Galatians? I think it's chapter 5. He says, you have fallen from grace. Those of you who seek to be justified by your law-keeping. Because of who God is, because of the value of what He has done, because of that, He can only freely give to us if we come to Him and try to receive it on another basis. God says, that's error. Your whole relationship with Me is going to be on the wrong basis. You can only be on the right basis if that basis is grace. And you freely receive what I freely give. A lot of people down through the ages have made a lot of statements about what Christ has have done. Some of them are really great. One of them is, quote, God's riches at Christ's expense. You ever hear that one? And that's why it's freely given to us. And so forth. But it all boils down to the fact that God is a God of all grace. God longs and desires, even in this life, to freely give to us what He wants us to have. And much of the Christian life is a matter of Him establishing us in a relationship with Him so that He can trust us with it. Read all those parables of Jesus that He talks about where He gives people talents or He gives to them this or that. All those parables. Remember what happens when he comes back and, and, and requires an accounting from these people for, for all these things again and again and again. You see this pattern repeated in the parables. He always asks them, what have you done with what I've given you? And then on the basis of that, what happens? He gives them more or less. So in other words, God has given us a down payment of His very life via the Holy Spirit now. You might say that's the talent. What are we doing with that now? Is it resulting in a relationship with God? Is it resulting in freedom, truth, and life? He's going to say to us, I gave you this much of a down payment you did well with it. You lived in it. You let me have my way with you, he would say to us. I can give you more. But if we have squandered it, then it isn't a matter of God yanking back our inheritance. It's a matter of him saying, listen, you, you haven't even done with what I've given you, what I've required. How can you possibly expect more? 
So what happens now in our relationship with God over these things and over the inheritance has a bearing, does it not? According to Jesus, it does, on then. And I've said so many times, if I am not walking with Jesus Christ now, more and more coming under His Lordship, more and more letting Him do His will and His glory in my life, if I'm not doing that now, why do I suppose I'm going to let Him do it then? In the eternal ages. I won't have a relationship, will I? Because I will have shut Him out now. There's nothing then. And so we have all these relationships. So God has an inheritance for us. And that inheritance was promised all the way back to Abraham. He said, in your seed, Jesus Christ, all the nations will be blessed. He said, Jesus Christ has inherited all things. We see that in the New Testament. But he says, if you receive Christ, you are then one with Christ. So then you are the seed of Abraham, fellow heirs according to promise. What an incredible thought that in Christ believers are to inherit all things. That in Christ believers are to share with what Christ has inherited by virtue of his death and resurrection. And that this is not only the destiny of Christians for the eternal ages, but it is the destiny really to begin experiencing right now. I think sometimes when we think about the redemption of Christ, we rightly think much about salvation. But that's only the beginning, isn't it? We have been saved for something. We have been saved unto something. Not just to go to heaven playing on a harp. We have been saved to live with God forever and according to Scripture to reign and rule with Christ forever. That's the destiny of the believer and the one which Paul says to the Ephesians, man, I am just praying that you would see this. That you would recognize the hope of your calling and the eternal purposes for which you have been called. So to close, back in Galatians, Paul says to the Galatians, you received the Holy Spirit. It's a down payment on everything that God has for you in Christ. You received it freely. You didn't earn it. You didn't do works to maintain it. So why are you trying to do that? He is saying to them, listen, remember Abraham. God promised that through Abraham would come a new race. It's really through his son. And he's saying, through the seed of Abraham, you are going to inherit everything God has for you. In fact, you've already started with the down payment. He says, so don't try to earn this stuff through good works. Instead, embrace it by faith and establish a relationship to God in the Christian life from that will emerge.